you know, we felt that the current system gave us a lot of freedom of action to do whatever we wanted to do in space. And we didn't need to have any kind of restrictions. We didn't want to have restrictions. One of the things that's changing is there are other countries like Russia and China that are now beginning to exploit that same freedom of action. And at some point that becomes, in my opinion, a problem for the United States, right? You know, our freedom of action is their freedom of action. And every other domain of activities, land, air, maritime, we have decided there are certain act actions, there are certain behaviors that are wrong and people should not do. I think we're at the point we need to figure out what those are for space. From the Defense and Aerospace Report, this is The Downlink, a podcast about the intersection of space, the space business, and defense. Not just what's over the horizon, but what's happening above it. I'm your host, Laura Winter. Hello, Downlink listeners. We've arrived at the close of one calendar year and the beginning of another. While it's common practice for us media types to revisit the top of the charts news stories, I'd like to instead give you a few of what I believe are the key 2021 data points that will punch through into the coming year and years to open this episode's multi-generational space, business, and defense story. First, at the end of 2021, Elon Musk's communications company Starlink has launched and now operates roughly a third of all operational satellites. That's not a nation, but a privately held company with a communications as a service business model. And just in case you missed it, this year investors valued Musk's private space launch company, SpaceX, at more than $100 billion, and Musk is also Time Magazine's Person of the Year. The significance? SpaceX and the value chain it symbolizes points to an underlying commercial space sector that is maturing rapidly. The second data point, in my opinion, some folks have wrongly characterized Russia's anti-satellite test in November as merely a distraction. Great power warfare is not just that battleship game we all grew up with. A great power that wants to achieve an overwhelming, no-contest, military victory will at once use as many tools in the box to open as many fronts and as many domains that it can reasonably manage. So think space domain, cyber domain, along with land, sea, and air. The intent is to orchestrate and manage civil and military chaos. But what's so nasty about that ASAT test was that it was unnecessary. Just think, it's not like Russia doesn't know how to launch a rocket with accuracy. And that test has left deadly space debris that's going to stay whizzing around in orbit long enough to see me possibly reincarnate, if you believe in that sort of thing. The third and last big data point is the push to agree to some practical rules of space behavior. Essentially, if we want unfettered access to and through space, that means reining in bad behavior. So in July, Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin issued the DOD's Tenants of Responsible Behavior in Space. His deputy, Kathleen Hicks, has since called for a moratorium on kinetic ASAT tests. And twice in the past two months, the United Nations has voted overwhelmingly to start the foundational work needed to draft binding rules, norms, and principles of responsible space behavior. Now, you may have noticed that China this week demanded that the U.S. wrap Elon Musk's knuckles with a ruler. China complains that it had to move its Tianhe space station to avoid colliding with the Starlink satellite. Twice. Well, that's a pretty rich demand considering that the International Space Station this November had to burn fuel to dodge a hunk of debris left over from China's 2007 ASAT test. Oh, and on each of those two UN votes I just mentioned, yeah, China gave them both a thumbs down. So let's take a look at the space debris norms of behavior story arc from the beginning, and it starts with Donald Kessler. Perhaps you've heard of the Kessler Syndrome. He's the astrophysicist who opened NASA's Orbital Debris Program Office at the Johnson Space Center in 1979, and recently he gave me a bit of his time. Hello, Don. It's such an honor to have you on the downlink. 
Thank you, Laura. We're proud to be here. You know, of course, many who are working in and out of defense and space have heard of the syndrome named after you, but they really don't know you. And we're going to get into your history in just a minute. But first, tell us where you are now and what you're doing. Well, I'm right now living in a retirement community and enjoying retirement. And but occasionally I do some work in the form of, uh, of talking to people like yourself and be able to for people to understand exactly what our issues are as far as uh, debris is concerned in Earth orbit and why we're concerned about it. You started your career in uniform with the Army and served at the Air Defense Command. In 1962, you started studying physics at the University of Houston. And while you were a college student, you actually started working for NASA. It must have been a pretty exciting time. It was during the Apollo program. What did you do there? It was like a dream come true when NASA, first of all, moved to Houston. And then secondly, when I learned that they had what they called a cooperative education program, where I could go to school a semester and then work at NASA for a semester. And that quickly got my foot in the door in terms of what things needed to be done. And one of my first assignments was to understand the hazards associated with going to the moon. That's what the main project was at that time. And everybody was working toward that end to be sure that you could safely get there. And the way you would safely get there would be to make sure you had enough, make sure you had enough shielding on the spacecraft in order to get there with a certain probability of, of landing and being able to come back. And that usually meant said, how much shielding do I need to add in order to come up with those kind of parameters? You need to do things with you had a, what we call a hypervelocity gun, which could should shoot pellets at as, as much as five kilometers per second. That would call, you could see what kind of damage it would cause, and then they would apply that to it. And that period of my life actually was the most educational. I got more education out of that than I did the college degrees because. We, it was a practical use of it. I could begin to understand real quickly exactly what happens when you have things moving at very high velocities. Now, didn't you go from that to looking at how we would possibly manage to get to Mars, to actually have a human mission to Mars, and perhaps having to travel through the solar system's asteroid belt? Yeah, that was the one of the assignments was to say what we said, okay, we, we now understand what the hazard is of getting to the moon, but our next project may be to go to Mars. And the way we would get there would actually take us on a, on a trajectory that would go through the asteroid belt. And so we needed to understand what that environment was. And that was a different kind of problem because when you're looking at between Earth and the, and the moon, would actually made measurements about what the hazard was. We've flown spacecraft uh, with sensors on them. They got hit so many times and you knew what the hazard was. But when you get to the interplanetary environment, we had no data. The only data that we had was the fact that you have these asteroids in orbit colliding with one another and producing small debris that would eventually make it to the Earth and were part of what we call the meteorite hazard. As they would, when you hit hit hard enough, they would they would come to the Earth. Of course, there was also meet natural meteorites from comets that release these small particles, and they were already in very high velocities. But the main thing, and it was easy to pretty much understand how that was working, but we didn't understand exactly what would happen from collisions within the asteroid belt. And so I built a model based on the assumption that most of the debris that we would encounter would be from collisions of asteroids. And that got me curious at the, from the very beginning is we're putting all these things in Earth orbit and it's sort of like a miniature asteroid belt around the Earth. Those things are gonna collide as well and what's going to be the consequences of that? And that was something that I couldn't answer that question immediately because they, the meteorite sciences branch was dissolved because they said, you've already solved all the problems we're, we need to worry about and you need to go do some other work. And it wasn't for several years later that I had an opportunity to answer that question. When you did have that opportunity to look for the answers to that question, 
what did you find? You know, explain the Kessler syndrome. People have heard of it, but not everyone understands it. I was surprised at the answer. I was shocked actually at how quickly things would start colliding in Earth orbit. So I, I put together a publication entitled uh, The Collision Frequency of Artificial Satellites, The Creation of a Debris Belt. And it was published, but between the time it was published and the time it actually, anybody got a chance to see it and think about it, I was transferred to other places to work. And so I was sort of getting lost in the system. But eventually when I got a call from oh, First of all, I got a lot of call from reporters, which then reported this. And then secondly, uh, I got a call from a person in the United Nations. Uh, his name was Lubos Peric. He worked for Czechoslovakia, who was supporting Czechoslovakia at that time. And, and uh, I, he wanted a copy of my publication even before uh, it came out officially. And I had to ask my management, then, is this okay? Can I get this? Well, of course, that also got the attention of my management. And they wanted me then to uh, explain to them exactly how much data I had and what I, how I could support this type of projection before going on to anything else. And so I ended up with a briefing to the senior management of NASA in Houston, including the center director, telling them the story of exactly where, what our data had and what we could expect from it and whether we should continue, be able to continue this work or not. Take a moment and explain the syndrome that is actually bearing your name. Well, it came shortly after the publication of the, my first paper about uh, the collision frequency of artificial satellites. And one of my colleagues that I worked with was explaining it to a, uh, a reporter. And uh, he said, and then we got this thing called a Kessler syndrome, or referred to as a Kessler syndrome. And the reporter picked up that name and repeated it in his publication. And then other reporters continued to, to do the same thing. And the first thing I knew that it spread internationally, I think it was because there was a thing called the China syndrome that just sort of spread the interest in some whatever a syndrome really is. <laughs> and it's been that way ever since. I had no control over it. And what is the Kessler syndrome? It's just an ex, a, a short explanation that you that when you put things in orbit uh, and they're almost randomly put into various different orbits, they will collide with one another and the collision of those things colliding will cascade into colliding with something else. And actually, it's not much different. In fact, it, it is the equations that are used to express that are the same equations that you could use to, to predict what would happen in a pandemic, because you have a cascading phenomena there as well. You know, I've read that you had a tough time getting the then director of the Johnson Space Center, Christopher Columbus Kraft, to take your work seriously. And then the SALT II talk started. That was kind of a turnaround moment for your ideas, wasn't it? What what happened? Yeah. It did get it did say that this is this is definitely getting into international uh, attention. And because it is an international attention, we better pay attention to it. And that also contributed to it. And then when I went to the, also the meeting, I had more data too. I could, because there had been a test that says, uh, are we cataloging everything? And they just discovered, no, we're not cataloging everything. We're missing a lot of stuff, especially the small stuff. And uh, there were these things in orbit that were producing fragments. No one knew what they were. They were being identified as the payload that was put into orbit. They never mentioned the rocket body. But turned out the rocket bodies were exploding. And that's when I went through and said, okay, if we just look at rocket bodies, which ones are exploding? Well, they were the United States rocket bodies. And my management said, well, heck, we can do something about that. To explode, they have to have an energy source. And the energy source is the excess fuel in that. We will just have them empty all the extra fuel uh, that they have after they've delivered their payload. And sure enough, the explosion stopped. So the fact that you could actually do something about it, it just wasn't a passive problem, said, okay, let's, we are be crazy not to continue this type of research. And I was given the charter then to go ahead and create what is now known as the Orbital Degree Program Office. That's pretty amazing to actually affect policy as well as rocket design 
to become more responsible stewards of space, near-Earth space around Earth. But in 1985, the U.S. Air Force conducted an anti-satellite test, and it wasn't the first time a space power had done that. The Soviet Union had already been testing how to blow up satellites since 1968. I know you warned the Air Force about the danger. What happened? How could they argue with an astrophysicist with NASA, whose entire focus was on orbital debris? The people that were deciding to do that were, of course, only on the military side. And they, they saw a need for, just like the Soviet Union saw a need for, to understand an anti-satellite system. But what they didn't understand was hypervelocity impacts. They didn't understand the amount of energy that can be uh, that's in an object that's traveling at very high velocities and what it will do to a spacecraft when it hits it. And their their concept was, oh, well, you don't know what will happen. Uh, it'll just make a clean hole through it and not cause any problem whatsoever. And of course, that is not what happened. They would, they insisted on doing this, this test. And apparently there was some law about to become effective that would uh, ban them in the future. So they, they wanted to get under the wire to get that done. And it created so much debris. It's referred to as a kinetic kill test, where you use essentially the kinetic energy of the object that's orbiting and let it run into whatever target you throw up into space that's just going straight up and down. So it's, it's not moving in the same direction at all. But you're, you're running into things that are traveling at about seven kilometers per second. And you know we know from lab tests that is going to cause it to totally explode. We've now even had more ASAT tests. The U.S., China, India, and now Russia again. They all have claimed that at the time of the test that what they were doing is, well, no big deal, that the debris will simply fall back to the earth and burn up in the atmosphere. Can you explain the folly of their argument? Well, if you do the test at a low altitude, it, it will re-enter in a very short time, and you, but you're limited to altitudes that are just a few hundred kilometers uh, above you, and, and there's enough atmosphere to cause it to re-enter. But that's not where most of the satellites are. Most of the satellites that are higher altitude, and at those higher altitudes, anything, some as high as up to nearly a thousand kilometers, those altitudes, the debris will not re-enter within a short time at all. And I don't think they they understand that, or else they wouldn't be so stupid. What should the future generations of near-Earth space be doing? to ensure that we still have access to, you know, near Earth, low Earth orbits. We may have already passed over what I call a tipping point, where debris is being produced at a faster rate than it re-enters naturally. And we've already got so much stuff up there that cascading will just continue to grow and won't stop until everything's ground up into really small particles. And then it, because it's so small, it either gets blown away by the solar wind or the very, even the very thin atmosphere brings it down. But that may take thousand, a thousand years or so. What you need to do is to start removing those things in orbit uh, to reverse this whole process, to bring it down below the tipping point so that we're not going to, uh, it, when things collide, it's not going to cascade into exponentially with time. And we're, no near, we're near doing that right now. What do you think of the guideline of 25 years from end of life service to deorbiting? Is that really sensible or should you should it be well, quicker? I mean, iridium satellites it, come down in about a year. I, it should it should be quicker. The history behind that 25 year rule is it was first proposed as something like 20 years. It was a compromise at the time. And at the time, the Department of Defense was worrying that we were going to do something like make it short, real short and require them to do a lot of work. And so they were actually relieved when we had this longer period. Well, now that the Defense Department is, is, is more in agree with us, I agree it can be done in a, in a much shorter period of time. Something like five years or even less is perfectly reasonable to require it to reenter. However, that is that 25-year rule is so much in our system now be hard, unfortunately, it'd be hard to change, but it should be changed, I agree. Don, thank you so much for your time. Well, thank you so much for this opportunity. When 
Don and his colleagues retired in the late 1990s, there were fewer than 800 active satellites in orbit. As of December 22, 2021, the European Space Agency believes there are 7,790 satellites in orbit, but only 4,900 are actually functioning. And the numbers don't get better. ESA estimates there have been more than 630 breakups, explosions, collisions, or anomalous events resulting in fragmentation. Various authorities are tracking almost 31,000 pieces of debris or junk, but there could be as many as 31 million pieces ranging in size from 1 millimeter to 10 centimeters that are not tracked. Now that the dilemma is clearly defined for Gen X, we pick up this story with Brian Whedon of the Secure World Foundation, who came to this threat by way of the U.S. Air Force. Hi, Brian. Thanks for coming on the downlink. My pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me. You know, I've been following you and your work for a number of years. Uh, Could you explain what it is that you do with the Secure World Foundation? Our mission is to help ensure the long-term sustainable use of space for the benefit of everyone on Earth. What that entails is looking at the potential threats and challenges to the ways we use space, and orbital debris is a big one of those, uh, and figuring out ways to deal with it. Uh, Not just so we can continue to do the stuff we're doing now, but also to be able to come up with new inventive ways to use space into the future. And for us, it's all about that benefits here on Earth piece of things. Space is such a huge part of our daily lives from getting to the grocery store to the weather forecast and monitoring what's happening with the Earth and all sorts of national security issues. We want to make sure we continue to use uh, it for all those benefits. So that's our mission uh, is to how to ensure that that long term sustainable use. Uh, My job uh, has evolved over a bit of time. A big part of it is actually translating between the technical world, the legal world, and the policy world. Uh, Each of those groups have their own communities of people, their own language, and we sort of sit at the intersection of all three of those. So myself, I come from more of a technical background, uh, but uh, recently education in the policy world, I hang out with a lot of lawyers, which I think to be a good thing in our world. Um, And so being able to navigate translating between those is really what I spend a lot of my time doing. I have to admit that I've always wanted to ask this question. It may seem a bit flip, but really I'm just having a little fun on what's a pretty serious subject. What was it that made you think, right, I'm going to be an expert on litter and other stuff in space, in orbit? Well, it definitely was not on the high school, you know, guidance counselor form, right? Uh, You know, I remember thinking, I kind of want to go into the space field just because it was cool. Obviously, I didn't know anything at all. I never wanted to be an astronaut, that sort of a thing. I was more into sort of, you know, satellites and and, and rockets. I ended up going into the U.S. Air Force on a ROTC scholarship studying electrical engineering. Um, And then coming out of that, I selected uh, space and missile duty as my first job in the military. And, And that's how I ended up in the space world. In fact, my last job in the Air Force in the early 2000s was as a orbital analyst with the first space control squadron, which at the time was located in Shine Mountain in Colorado Springs, and was responsible for tracking all the stuff in Earth orbit and maintaining the satellite catalog and keeping track of things, debris, and warning about collisions. So I spent three years doing that job, and that that is what really opened my eyes to what was going on up there, what was happening, um, and what the real impacts were from orbital debris. Towards the end of that time, uh, of course, we had the, the 2007 Chinese China satellite test in January 2007. Um, that was something that you know I was on the operations floor for and was a, was a pretty eye-opening experience. And of course, we were then dealing with that for months and months afterwards, trying to catalog all the debris. I then left the Air Force and got picked up by Secure World to focus on space debris and and to kind of become their space debris expert to talk about it, raise awareness about it. And and really over the last decade plus with Secure World, uh, we've realized there's a, a need for someone to talk about this, to kind of push awareness, but also 
to be working on what the solutions are. How do we deal with this? So I don't know. I, I find it, I kind of stumbled into the space debris litter world, but I find it fascinating. And, you know, I, I, I love my job every day. I, I, I really like working on these issues and, and, and you know, trying to, to do what we can to make it better. Just to bring it into the world of reality for the defense crowd that's uh, listening to this interview. And if I could take you back to that time when you were with U.S. Strategic Command's uh, Joint Space Operations Center or JSPOC, you said that you were on the operations floor for the for China's ASAT test. So how did that affect defense? I mean, you were there, you saw it, you, you saw the, the small picture as well as the big strategic picture. How does this translate into the defense sector and why should the defense sector, whoever they are and whatever stripe they are, should be you know, concerned about this? Well, what they tested on that day uh, is pretty much the same thing that Russia tested back earlier in November, which is an anti-satellite weapon, a ground-based anti-satellite weapon. So first and foremost, we cared about it because we were trying to, we were concerned, was it aimed at something we care about? Was it aimed at a U.S. satellite? Once that is over, the threat's not over because even though it was aimed in this case at a, at a Chinese satellite, uh, in that case, it created three and a half thousand pieces of debris bigger than a softball that most of which are still in orbit now, you know, more than 13 years later. And, and, and that became a huge concern, um, not only for protecting national security satellites, but also things like the International Space Station that, that have, you know, NASA astronauts and international astronauts on board. So, so that is why that was such a huge concern is first, the uh, you know, protecting U.S. national security systems from that weapon, from that threat. And then dealing with the fallout from their use of that in a test to destroy a satellite, which poses a risk to everybody operating in space. And the, the U.S. military is one of the biggest and most important satellite operators out there. And just to take it back for a sec, I, I read that you wrote that actually it was the U.S. when they decided to destroy uh, one of its own satellites that in a sense that that strategically kind of opened the door for other nations to to consider those kinds of tests. 2007 was not the first anti-satellite test, right? The first anti-satellite test back in 1959, it was the United States uh, firing a missile. And, and during the Cold War, the U.S. and Soviet Union conducted something just north of 50 anti-satellite tests. Maybe 10 or 12 of those actually were targeted at destroying a satellite and created space debris. So there's a lot of that going on during the superpower competition during the Cold War on both sides. There was a brief window of about 10 years, 95 to 2005, when we didn't really see any anti-satellite testing. And then it picked up again in, in the mid-2000s with China's testing. Actually, the system they used in 2007 to destroy a satellite, they flight tested it twice before that in 2005 and 2006, according to you know reporting we've, we've since found out. And, and several times since 2007. Um, in fact, since 2005, by our count, there's been something on the order of 22 or 23 anti-satellite tests in space. Uh, the difference is not only is it the U.S. and Russia, but now it's China and India. You know, so those four countries all have decided to do this for various reasons. There are differences in how they've done it. You know, China created three and a half thousand pieces of debris. Russia recently created about 1,500. Um, the U.S. created about 300 back in 1985, and then another couple hundred in 2008 when we destroyed an ailing uh, NROS intelligence satellite. Um, and then India created 150 or so in 2019. So there are differences in scale, but all those countries had to go ahead and do it. I think the concern that a lot of us have is, you know, testing these weapons is being seen as a way to show your power or, or to demonstrate some sort of prestige, when I honestly think it should be the opposite, right? There should be some shame attached to testing these sorts of things in this manner. But for what it stands right now, this, this seems to be a, how countries are interpreting this as a way to show their strength. 
When you entered the world of space traffic management, space debris, junk, ASAT tests, and you know even the number of satellites in orbit, what was the state of the orbital environment and even the Department of Defense's interest in it? Were there guidelines or policies regarding it or space behavior? You know, it's interesting looking looking back there there was a lot less stuff in orbit back in the mid 2000s. I off the top of my head, I think we had maybe 1500 or so active satellites when today we're closing in on four and a half, five thousand active satellites. There was probably on the order of 15,000 pieces of debris in low Earth orbit. I think nowadays we're up to 25 or, or, or more. Um, so certainly there's a lot more stuff in orbit that we're having to keep track of. A lot of that is the growth in the commercial uses of space. That's where a lot of those uh, changing satellites come from. From the, the, you know, the very earliest days, the U.S. government did care about orbital debris back to the, the 60s and the 70s with the Apollo program, although then it was more focused on the naturally occurring debris that comes from micrometeorites that are, that are kind of passing through Earth's orbit could pose a risk. Then starting in the 70s and the 80s, we started to realize, oh, well, this, humans are generating debris and we care about that as well. So in the 90s, uh, NASA formulated sort of the first set of standards for trying to minimize or mitigate the creation of that debris. And since then, there's sort of been a, a series of national policies in the U.S. to implement and further those. The first was, you know, we should have those standards. The second is they should apply to all the things the U.S. government does in space. The third was we should try and get other countries to sign up to those. We should have an international version of those. And now we're at the point where we have those international debris mitigation guidelines, uh, and we're encouraging countries to follow them and to, to put them in place in their national law and policy. Uh, and that's what we do here in the U.S. The Department of Defense, NASA, all the government agencies that operate in space, they are required to comply by what are known as the, the, the U.S. debris mitigation standard practices, which are, are very close to what the, those international um, guidelines. And then the U.S. agencies that license commercial activities in the U.S. are required to flow down those guidelines to their commercial licenses. So if I'm trying to fly a satellite and I'm getting a license from the Federal Communications Commission, part of that license looks at how I'm going to minimize the creation of debris, how I'm going to properly dispose of that satellite at the end of its life. Of course, being the government, there's there's always a catch. Uh, and for the longest time, there was a process to waive certain government missions from these guidelines uh, if they posed undue cost or they were a, a challenge to the operational mission of the satellite. These guidelines also, when they came about in the mid-2000s, there was a lot of stuff already on orbit. And we couldn't go back and change that to make it compliant. There was also a lot of stuff in the pipeline because we all know how defense acquisitions work, right? 10, 15, 20 plus years, right? So there may be something getting ready to launch tomorrow that it's too late to change it to make it comply with these guidelines. So up until just a few years ago, there were every year there were, you know, several, you know, DOD missions or satellites that were exempted from complying because they were you know they were they predated them or some other thing um, but but i think we're finally getting a handle on that so it's been an era uh, you know the u.s government has been committed to debris mitigation minimizing debris uh, i'll say for better part of 20 years now and it's only now that we're just starting to kind of really get serious about the implementation you've been involved in this sector for over two decades what do you think has been the most pivotal event or perhaps action or non-action that has affected the near-Earth space environment? I think the, the, the biggest one is actually a pair of events because they happen right next to each other. So I talked about the Chinese anti-satellite test app in January 2007. Well, February 2008, we had a collision between a U.S. commercial satellite and Iridium satellite and a dead Russian Cosmos satellite that created another 2,000 pieces of debris at about the same altitude as the Chinese anti-satellite test. So those two events, kind of a bam, bam, one-two punch, really changed the conversation about this issue. Um, as a result of those, 
the U.S. military went from just looking to protect uh, a short list of its own satellites and maybe the International Space Station to now today it provides close approach warnings for every satellite in the world as a result of the daily calculations that it does. Um, it also got a lot more countries interested in this. A lot more countries started implementing their own national guidelines and also developing their own ways to track things in space, uh, which is slowly getting better uh, across the world. So, so really those two events together really shocked our community and, and sort of pushed us to make some changes. Now, it certainly wasn't enough. Um, and I think a lot of us are concerned about, you know, what is the next bad thing that might happen that is going to be the next shock to the system? Because uh, unfortunately, we still have a lot more we need to do uh, to get to the point where we, we, we think we should be in addressing orbital debris so that we can have the sustainable use of space uh, and, and continue enjoying all those benefits. Would the Russian ASAT test be just another shock to that system, though? It certainly could be. I, I think, you know, the 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 Russian satellite test did not generate as much orbital debris, at least as far as we can tell so far, as the what happened in 2007, 2008. But it does come sort of as it's yet another in a series of these deliberate explosions, sorry, deliberate tests and destruction of satellites. And I think there is a a growing push to do something about that deliberate testing. Um, there have been some com- some countries that have, you know, quietly floated ideas for a ban on that kind of a testing. Uh, my organization has called on the, the four countries that have tested, the United States, Russia, China, and India, to declare moratoriums on that kind of testing and then work towards some sort of international agreement prohibiting it. So I hope that this Russian SOS does serve as the catalyst for that discussion. I don't think it's in anyone's interest to deliberately be destroying satellites in a way that creates orbital debris. That said, there's a long way to go before we're there, because you know, up until recently, the United States was not willing to engage in those kinds of international treaty discussions. And that's interesting because I've read some of your work from the past, and you have been vocal in your belief that the U.S. is, maybe this is the right word or the wrong word, please correct me if I'm wrong, but that the U.S. has relinquished its leadership role in debris mitigation and other efforts to secure the near-Earth space environment. You were critical of the Trump administration's update of the U.S. government's orbital debris mitigation and standards practices. Why? And, And now that we have a new administration and a new space council, what's the opportunity and why would this also be important to defense? No, I have indeed been critical. And if you look back at the history in the 60s and 70s, the United States was key to the creation of the major space trees that we have today, a lot of the existing practices, uh, including on debris mitigation. But since the 80s, the U.S. has sort of had a position of, well, we don't need anything else. We're good. And and. And meanwhile, we've seen this radical shift in how we use space, the growing number of actors in space, the growing commercial use of space, the growth in space debris. And, and I, I think there's a disconnect between the U.S. as the, the country that is currently the using and benefiting from space the most and the most reliant on space and the insistence the last few decades that we don't need anything else. We, we, we like the way things are. Part of that is, you know, the United States for a brief period of time was the, I'll say the sole space superpower. And, you know, we felt that the current system gave us a lot of freedom of action to do whatever we wanted to do in space. And we didn't need to have any kind of restrictions. We didn't want to have any restrictions. One of the things that's changing is there are other countries like Russia and China that are now beginning to exploit that same freedom of action. And at some point that becomes, in my opinion, a problem for the United States, right? You know, our freedom of action is their freedom of action. And every other domain of activities, land, air, maritime, we have decided there are certain actions, there are certain behaviors that are wrong and people should not do. I think we're at the point we need to 
figure out what those are for space. And, and, and it's fortunately, I mean, obviously I'm not trying to single the United States as the sole bad actor here. Certainly other people have been testing things, but the United States has been one of the countries unwilling to talk about new legal regimes or, or new agreements um, on this issue. I think that is changing, uh, but it's going to take a little bit of while, a little while to do so. So on the debris mitigation guidelines, you know, those were originally published. The U.S. standard debris mitigation standard practices was published in 2001. There was an update published uh, at the end of 2019. And my criticism was that they just made minor tweaks at the edges. And those tweaks did not reflect the, the difference in what was going on in space. These large constellations, the, the CubeSats, all the commercial activity, um, myself and I, I, frankly, a lot of people in the, the space debris community felt there should have been, felt there should have been a bigger change in the standard practices to reflect the change in what's happening in space. So now that we, we have a new administration, the new Space Council just sat, there's an opportunity here. And there seems to be some energy behind this. There's a very senior DOD official who even called for a moratorium on kinetic ASAT testing. What do you see as the opportunity? And do you actually think the U.S. government's going to seize it? So part of the, the challenge here, it's not, these are not necessarily political issues. So it's not like you know one party is going to tackle it differently than other parties necessarily. A lot of this is coming from the bureaucracy itself, from the from the civil service. It's bubbling up from the agencies, and, and changing the way that the Department of Defense and NASA and Department of Commerce and other agencies see this issue. That is a long process, and I think we are starting to see the end result of some of that process on. On the debris side, the 2010 national space policy put out by the Obama administration called for NASA and the Department of Defense to jointly develop the ability to remove space debris. That hasn't happened in the last 11 years, largely because those institutions didn't want to do it. They saw it as an unfunded mandate. It wasn't part of their core mission, a whole host of other reasons. That call has largely been re-echoed in the 2020 national space policy issued uh, at the end of the Trump administration, we will see whether or not we actually can make some progress on that. On the uh, on the anti-satellite testing, you know, arms control side, I, I, do, I do think there is some movement there. Uh, again, we have seen a long process over the last several years within the national security space community with they have been trying to get their hands on this issue of norms of behavior in space, which they've said they would like to help create and we should have them, but have been unwilling to kind of say, well, here's what we think the norm should be. <laughs> um, earlier this year, uh, the Department of Defense uh, signed out a memo on tenets of responsible space behavior, which I think was a very good first step. Um, those discussions have continued. I honestly do think that um, uh, what uh, Deputy Secretary Hicks mentioned at the Space Council meeting was sort of the beginning of perhaps a proposal from the U.S. along the, along these lines. Uh, there's a, a big uh, multilateral discussion on space security happening in February, uh, part of what they call this open-ended working group that was authorized by the first committee uh, back in November. Um, that is going to be the first opportunity in several years for the international community to formally sit down and discuss these issues. And I hope that the United States or some other country brings up this issue of a ban on ASAP testing and, and there's some discussions. Now, there's gonna to need to be a lot of work, right? How do you define that? How do you phrase that? How do you, what sort of verification mechanisms, what's entailed in it? There's a lot of work that would have to go into it, but I am cautiously optimistic that we're gonna see that happening. And I think, I think that would be the United States benefit, right? I, I think the United States loses when other countries are testing these weapons. For one, they get to figure out whether or not they work and they get to maybe make them better, which maybe means they could be actually used against the United States in a future conflict. Um, and then two, they generate a whole bunch more of orbital debris that's gonna be a problem for everybody going forward. So I think it's in the US interests. 
um, we'll see whether or not that, that bears, bears out in the next few months. Thank you so much for your time, Brian. It was my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Taking a quick moment to digest what Brian said, what we're really left with are questions such as, will the U.S. lead? How should the U.S. lead? What should the mechanisms be to hand off the responsibility of tackling the strategic threat to commerce and national security to the millennials? To answer these questions, I spoke with a millennial, Robin Dickey of the Aerospace Corporation. Hi, Robin. Welcome to the downlink. Hi, thank you for having me. You know, as you're the youngest space expert I have had on the podcast, you have inherited the space debris issue and its strategic security implications. But before we get into that, first, tell me about yourself. Where are you currently working? What are you researching? What are you digging into? Sure. So I am a space policy and strategy analyst at the Aerospace Corporation's Center for Space Policy and Strategy. So I cover a pretty wide range of space policy issues, mainly kind of at the intersection of security, geopolitics, international relations. Um, But really over the last year and looking into the future, I've looked a lot at norms of behavior for space and how do you get people to act nicely, play well together in space. You earned your bachelor's from Johns Hopkins University and stayed at the university to get your master's from what is really one of the nation's premier international relations programs, the Paul Nisa School of Advanced International Studies. But I have to tell you, you are the first person from that school that I have met who is working in the space policy arena. I'm, I'm sure there are others, but you really are the first. You have to tell me What inspired you? Was it a moment, a person, perhaps something you read, a video game? So I do actually have a very specific epiphany point in my life when I decided to become kind of a space policy person. So to to wind it way back, growing up, I was always the, the artsy kid. I love languages and cultures, and I knew I wanted to do something international relations but both of my parents are actually aerospace engineers. So I grew up space adjacent, shall we say, but I always thought that's cool, but it's a lot of math and science, it's just not for me. So I go to college for international relations, actually focusing on Middle East studies and conflict management. That's what I thought I was gonna do. And then kind of right in between undergrad and graduate school, I was having some conversation with other policy folks and somehow ended up deep into a 20 minute personal monologue about how scary space debris is and that, you know, we should be doing something about it. And I, you know, kind of got hit with the thunderbolt of like, wow, if I'm so upset that policy people aren't really leaning into space issues, then maybe I should just lean into and talk about space issues and be a space policy person. And that was it. And so I've changed my whole focus to be, to do space. And that's what I kind of studied and tried to work into my curriculum throughout my time at um, uh, grad school. I just have to say, wow. (laughs) Your paper, Building Normentum, a framework for space norm development, made a really big splash in space and defense policy circles this summer. And in it, you lay out a framework underpinned by a decision matrix that captures the push and pull of the interagency well, actually all the branches of the U.S. government and the challenges and opportunities presented by the international community. And it's real complicated. Can you give the Cliff Notes version of what you propose and what you hope the framework will achieve? Absolutely. So, I mean, first of all, norms and behavior in space is just a massive problem. And even figuring out what bite to try to take out of it was, it was a challenge in and of itself. But what I saw going on in the conversation was a lot of growing interest in norms in general, kind of agreement that norms for space are needed, and some initial conversations on what those norms could be. But what I wasn't seeing was a particularly strategic approach to how do you get from an idea, a proposal, to something that is internationally accepted, adopted, and implemented. 
So what I tried to do with this paper was kind of break down the whole process of norm development uh, into four stages. So there's the idea that before you bring this to the international community, you have to figure out domestically what you're trying to say, how you're going to develop it, how, who wants to lead in introducing that norm. And then it moves into who are you starting with internationally? Are you gonna focus on allies or like-minded nations first, or are you gonna take the more uh, inclusive appearing path of going through multilateral organizations like the UN, which like you said, there's lots of pros and cons, strengths and opportunities. And then the, the third issue is what are the diplomatic tools that you're actually using to establish commitment? Are you going for a binding treaty or a non-binding UN resolution? Or are you just unilaterally kind of declaring what you think the norm should be and hope others join along? And then finally, if you're going to take a strategic approach, you have to figure out where your, your end goal is. What's the finish line? And that's the idea of is how many countries, how many actors need to say that they support a norm in order to really feel like this is something internationally accepted and adopted. So that's the, the four course meal. And you can kind of choose different, different items at each stage and there's any number of combinations. But the key argument that I have at the end is really that there's no one size fits all solution to norm development different kinds of norms are gonna take different paths to go through those four stages. And you can really tailor each decision to match the context, the international support or discussion already happening on specific issues and really kind of make it customized to the situation you're going through to make the most effective norm. In reading your paper, which I just did for the second time to prepare for this interview, I can't help but see similarities between what you have proposed and what some of the policy decisions of the Biden administration, you know, that that it's made this autumn and early winter. Can you explain what they are and why they are important? Are they even milestones, perhaps? I think we're at a really interesting time for norm development in terms of there seeming to really be this consensus that we need to develop norms, which is catalyzing a lot of conversations and policies that are trying to kind of move the needle forward. So almost at the same time that I published the paper was when the Secretary of Defense was talking about tenets of responsible behavior in space that the, the Pentagon should follow, which was really interesting to see. Um, we also have at the United Nations level, um, the progression of something that I talk about in the paper, which is the discussion of different countries submitting their ideas on responsible behavior in space, which was started by a resolution that the United Kingdom submitted to the UN um, in 2020. And so now we're actually looking at the level of creating what's called an open-ended working group. Um, in the UN where countries will sit down and have in-depth discussions on what constitutes responsible or irresponsible behavior in space. And then finally, we also have the National Space Council had its first meeting under the Biden administration just at the beginning of December. Um, and what was really exciting was they said there were three big priorities for national space policy. And one of them was leading in the development of norms of behavior. So particularly good day for me. And then we also have just the explosion of activities in space. New things are happening every day and how different countries, different companies react to those all feed into the bigger picture on norms. So we had in November, the, um, the Russian test of an anti-satellite weapon destroying one of their own defunct satellites. And we saw really you know, widespread response to that not just from countries. So the United States was from many different levels talking about how this is irresponsible, unacceptable behavior, but we also had allies, the United Kingdom, Australia, Japan, also condemning the behavior, but also really interesting, there were lots of companies that put out statements that were talking about how this was irresponsible and how it, the debris created from the test um, could be very threatening to space activities in the future. So, you know, that goes through some of the different types of activities that my framework looks at. Some of those are multilateral discussions. Some of those are the U.S. looking at how to domestically coordinate on norm development. And some are countries just speaking more openly about what they see as being irresponsible and responsible in space. 
all of which just part of the bigger picture. You know, I noticed what actually took me aback was seeing Kathleen Hicks, the Department of Defense's number two, actually talk about a moratorium on ASAT tests. I mean, what did you think of that? That was a big day for me. You're really interesting to see because I'm not sure that that was something that had really been put forward so directly, especially by someone as, as senior as, as she is. For me, what, what actually took me aback was that that having a moratorium on ASAT tests would actually also limit you know, what the Department of Defense could do in terms of its testing, that it was something that I hadn't really heard them say before, that we, we're going to limit ourselves on testing and we'd actually like to see a moratorium. But that's the reason why I brought that up. That's It's an important point with norms that I try to make a lot is that all norms are going to constrain your behavior in some way because there's a judgment on something's acceptable, something's not acceptable. And so big part of the framework is it's not just trade-offs in how you develop the norm. There's trade-offs inherent in any kind of norm that you try to build because you're constraining your behavior in some way. So it's really just about finding the norms where the benefits of everyone following that constraint is you know, well worth the cost of some kind of limitation that you have to put on your own behavior. I'd like to know what you think are the biggest challenges ahead in the coming year and what should the Biden administration do to keep the normentum going? And oh, yes, the pun is intended. <laughs> yes, I mean, the pun was very much intended on my part, too, when I put it in on the title of my paper, because love me a good pun. But jokes aside, um, the big challenge, I think, is that we're really kind of, you know, we're riding the roller coaster and we're really getting up the hill and right about to reach kind of a, a turning point. And that's how I've said there's all this building support and interest in norms. But the hill that we have to get over in the next year or several years um, can take a long time when it comes to diplomacy is actually getting to those specifics and the trade-offs. It's one thing to say that you support the idea of, of norms of behavior in space. It's another to actually look at the, those trade-offs and say, I'm going to accept these kinds of losses in my freedom of action in exchange for the benefits to society, the world, or my own security and capabilities that come from norms. So what I really think is, is just the needed increase in the conversations more at that level of trade-offs and specifics. I think we're all feeling pretty good that we all like norms. Which norms do we want? Why do we want them? And how are we going to get there? That's what I'm trying to kind of catalyze with the Normentum paper. And so I think that will cover a wide range of norms issues from debris to just how different actors communicate to each other Climate change was another big priority of the National Space Council, and I think that space norms will have a role to play in that as well. But really, across the board, it's how do we get to those trade-offs and start making you know, some decisions that could be pretty tough. You know, you mentioned when you're talking about these policies, these policies for normentum, that they really need a strategic final goal. And perhaps this isn't totally fair, but I think it's actually really important to ask somebody who, what, I, I believe you're in your early 20s, yep. what, in your perfect world, what should be the final end goal be for norms? What do you want to see? Oh, that's a really tough one. I mean, I think when you look big picture I and mean, you said right at the beginning that my generation is inheriting the debris issues. We're inheriting all sorts of issues. That's just how, you know, the, the generational turnover ends up working in the leadership of society. But there's those four S's that people like to use when talking about space. It's safety, sustainability, stability, and security. And so I think, you know, any end goal that I have for space is probably not even going to be achieved in, in my lifetime, just in terms of maximizing those four S's as much as possible. So instead, it's looking at how can we measure progress, even if the goal is not something that we can see right now, can we tell if we're moving in the right direction? So that, that's something that I think is crucial. Um, 
But I, I think just anything that we can do to reduce the impact of debris on space activities, to maximize the freedom of people to operate peacefully in space, they're, those are very big, general, lofty goals. But that's what I, I think the whole point is, to have super lofty goals and then figure out what are the practical steps that make progress towards those. Robin, thank you so much for coming on The Downlink. Thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. That's it for this week and this year. I hope that you not only enjoyed this extended episode, but learned something new. Be sure to check back with the Defense and Aerospace Report for the latest defense news and insights brought to you by Vago Muradian, who is the editor for all of the Deaf Era Report podcasts. And check out our producer, Chris Cervellis Cavus Ships, which he co-hosts with Chris Cavus. That weekly podcast is everything you need to know about the maritime domain. For space, you can subscribe to the downlink on iTunes, iHeart, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, and SoundCloud. I'm Laura Winter. Thank you for listening, and have a great new year.